Alright, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday, and on Wednesdays this year, I've been doing a regular segment about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders from 1946, the story of the Phantom Killer, a serial killer who was never caught, and his identity remains a mystery even to this day. This is part of an ongoing series, but if you haven't heard the previous episodes, that's fine. You can keep listening. I always want these multi-part discussions to be made available to people who jump right into the middle. They can be standalone episodes, or some of you might be listening to it in the playlist. But no matter what, this show is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1. You can get that in the description box. Download the audio version as a pure podcast. And don't forget about the buymeacoffee.com page. If you would like to support any of these efforts, that's a way you can contribute and donate to the show. And anybody who makes a contribution will get a shout-out on Zodiac Monday, and all donations or contributions will be used for things such as new equipment for the show, or even purchasing true crime books to talk to you guys about. So one more time, buymeacoffee.com, blackboxnet88, in the description box. This is the time when I'm going to be discussing the final crime that was allegedly committed by the Phantom Killer, and this is the murder of Virgil Starks. It is really quite different than some of the other crimes that were involved in this series, because the Phantom Killer began operating in February of 1946 by targeting a couple named Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean LeRae, and they both survived the attack and they were able to give the description of a hooded perpetrator, someone who was almost wearing a pillowcase with eyes cut out for the holes in the mouth. But what was really odd, though, is they were saying that maybe it was an African-American or maybe it was a Caucasian. Conflicting reports from the same attack, like two different witnesses are looking at the same person and saying something completely different. That shows you the value of eyewitness testimony when looking at an unidentified perpetrator. But then there is the first double murder that took place, the second double murder that took place, and then the murder of Virgil Starks, which was not a double murder because his wife survived. But also, this was the first time that the Phantom Killer didn't go after a couple that was sitting in a parked car, most likely at a lover's lane, or just um, a couple in a car, period. And this is a home invasion. This was a time when Virgil Stark sat in an armchair and he was just blindsided, more or less, by the Phantom Killer. And I really have to give a shout-out to the website unsolved.me. I was looking for articles that were discussing the murder of Virgil Starks, and so many of them were just general. Even if they weren't copy and pasted from the Wikipedia page, they were just paraphrasing the Wikipedia page. Very, very basic. Not a lot of detail. So I might be relying on this source a little bit too much in this episode, but I really did appreciate how they arranged their uh, discussion on the murder of Virgil Starks. To have a read, Walter Virgil Starks was born on April 3rd of 1909. He was born to a farming family in the area of Texarkana, Arkansas, and over time, he would go by his middle name, Virgil. In his childhood, Virgil met a girl named Catherine Strickland, who went by her own nickname, Katie. Like Virgil, she was born in 1909, but a few months after him, on September 25th. The two would remain friends throughout their childhood as they began growing through adolescence. Their friendship took a more romantic turn. 
On March 2nd of 1932, they were both 22 years old and they decided to marry. They became Mr. and Mrs. Virgil Starks, and soon thereafter would move to a modern ranch-styled house just northeast of Texarkana. This home, which was on a 500-acre farm, would become the Starks' marital home. Virgil worked primarily as a farmer, but would occasionally do welding work for neighboring farms, and that is very important, because pieces and items that were connected to Virgil Starks' welding shop might implicate a suspect in the Texarkana Moonlight murders. The home they lived in was just across the street from Katie's sister, and within two miles of Virgil's brother and father. The two would have no children, but lived a comfortable life. They enjoyed one another's company, and they grew to love each other dearly. May 3rd, 1946, was just like any other Friday for Virgil and Katie Starks. Virgil, now 37, called it quits early in the evening. Just before 9 p.m., he was finally getting to unwind after a long day. Virgil turned on his favorite weekly radio show and sat down in his favorite armchair in the family sitting room, located just off the kitchen in the bedroom, and he listened to the radio program. And then he began looking through that day's edition of the Texarkana Gazette. Katie brought her husband a heating pad for his sore back and then kissed him goodnight. She was tired and began heading to the nearby bedroom to lie down for the evening. She changed into her nightgown and then got into bed. Minutes passed. As Katie lays there, she struggles to fall asleep. But then she hears some distracting sounds which might have come from the backyard, and asks Virgil to turn down the radio. He gets up to acquiesce, but it is then too late, and he is stopped in his tracks. Just seconds after asking him to turn down the radio, Katie in the nearby bedroom hears what sounds like the breaking of glass. She stands and rushes out to the nearby sitting room where she sees Virgil standing, before immediately dropping back into his armchair. His face is now covered in blood, and he had just been shot, and Katie couldn't immediately tell how many times, because unbeknownst to her, the killer was standing on the other side of the window, behind Virgil. Katie rushes over to her husband, and Vir Virgil, and she tries to help, but almost instantly she is hit with the crushing realization that there is nothing that she can do. He is dead. As such, she rushes over to the telephone to try and call the police. She manages to ring the wall crank twice before she is shot twice. The shots are fired from the same window that Virgil had just been sitting in front of, where this mysterious killer had been lurking, seemingly waiting. One of the shots enters Katie's right cheek, just behind her left ear. She drops to her knees, ending the phone call before it even started, and we will learn about how Katie is going to be a survivor, even though she has some very severe pain to her facial nerves, which is mostly capable of crippling anyone weak of heart, but Katie perseveres. She crawls to the nearest cover she can think of, the bedroom she had just minutes beforehand. There, she takes a brief moment to collect her thoughts and think about protection. Virgil kept a pistol in the living room, and she begins making her way toward the only thing that can protect her. As she stumbles into the living room, Katie is overcome with a dreadful realization. She is blinded by her own blood. She tries to make it out of her house, seeing little more than shapes and shadows. As she begins to look for the pistol, she can hear someone trying to loosen the screen from a window or a door. The killer, who had originally shot Virgil and Katie through a window at the front of the house, has now run toward 
the back of the house and up a small set of stairs toward the back door. There he or she began trying to tear the screen from the kitchen window so they could access the inside. Katie decides to exit the house. Barefoot and still wearing her nightgown, which was now soaked in blood, Katie runs across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's home. Unfortunately, no one was home at the time, so Katie runs another 50 or so yards to the neighbor, A.V. Prater. Thankfully, Prater was at home and awake, and he rushes to help Katie, who manages to get the word Virgil's dead out before collapsing. Prater grabs one of his rifles and fires into the air to alarm some of the neighbors. And, um, I'm sure some of you are already thinking about some very clear details, because this is so different than the crimes that had been previously been committed by the Phantom Killer, and some points that will be shared later on are that the first crime, as we said, had two surviving victims, and they were not even shot. They were bludgeoned, or hit with some type of blunt object. In the episode that I did on the about the attack on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Luray, it said very clearly in most sources, most sources said clearly that they were beaten with the gun itself. But other things that I was just reading earlier today were suggesting that maybe they were struck with a different type of blunt object. A killer can carry more than one weapon, right? But with the two double murders that the Phantom Killer allegedly committed next, the authorities have stated very clearly that the same weapon was used, a thirty-two caliber pistol, and to be more precise, a thirty-two caliber automatic pistol. This time, with the murder of Virgil Starks and the shooting of his wife Katie, they are shot with a twenty-two. And why? Why did the killer decide to use the same firearm twice and then use a different firearm a couple weeks later? It really is um quite uh, quite bizarre and perplexing. And did, did the killer just have more than one gun and decide to come out with a different gun? Or is this something that is completely different altogether? Back in 2019, I first learned about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. And I thought that this was just a set of five murders that were committed by the same person back in 1946, and I didn't question the likelihood of whether or not there were connections among them. I just accepted that that was a fact or that it was gospel. However, reading about this now, the murder of Virgil Stark seems so different, and all of the hallmarks of the Phantom Killer that I would expect are there are not. They should be there, but they are not. The thirty-two caliber firearm, even if there was just a sighting of a man with the pillowcase over his head, that would be something. But by this time, this is the final attack. Everybody knows about the Phantom Killer. The media has even created the name the Phantom Killer. The Phantom Killer wasn't bragging and trying to get people to recognize the name the Phantom Killer. He's not writing in letters saying this is the Phantom Killer speaking. This was something that was attributed to him by the media. So, one theory with the murder of Virgil Starks is that this was not the same killer at all. Instead, this was someone who was trying to murder them and pass it off as being the phantom killer. And you can respond to 
that in the comment section down below if you think that that is a plausible theory. But I really think that in 2019, I was a little bit overwhelmed by the similarities between the Phantom Killer and the Zodiac Killer, and that's mostly what I think clouded my judgment. And that's why I was reading about the murder of Virgil Starks and just simply thinking about how the Zodiac Killer went after couples at Lover's Lanes, then on the final attack deviated from that and murdered a taxi driver, Paul Stein. And the murder of Virgil Starks also has a deviation from the Phantom Killer's pattern. And I was just like, well, look at all these similarities. And I know that not every person who follows uh, this program is in agreement with me, but I definitely do believe that the Zodiac Killer studied the Phantom Killer, or at the very least, he was intensely familiar with it. He knew perhaps a lot of the details, and he might have accepted that the five confirmed murders of the Phantom Killer were somewhat um, completely attributed to said Phantom Killer. I definitely did when I first learned about this, but reading about this now, it really just seems like there's a lot of room for doubt that there's any type of actual Phantom Killer connection between the murder of Virgil Starks and the previous three attacks. But I'll keep going with this unsolved article. On May 29th of 1946, the Texarkana Gazette ran a front-page story on a new lead being developed by investigators, which focused in on a flashlight. The flashlight was found on the front page in the Gazette's first-ever color photo. It looked like a normal flashlight, but the ends had been painted red, making it rare for the area. A limited number of these had been sold in the Texarkana region, and the police were hoping that someone would be able to identify it. The flashlight had been discovered in a hedge underneath the Stark's front window, the same window that they had been shot through. I mean, that definitely seems like it would be some type of major uh, clue in the case, but um, easier said than done right. I mean, definitely a big piece of evidence if someone had identified that. Following the murder of Virgil Starks, the investigation, headed by both the Texas Rangers, on the Texas side, and now the Arkansas State Police on the Arkansas side, was given additional resources to combat the threat identified as the Phantom Killer. In addition, a teletype machine was installed in Bowie County's office, which allowed for easier communication between jurisdictions and departments. And you really got to think about 1946, you know. It, is, it isn't that long ago, but at the same time, that is so long ago, well before computers or anything, and they got to install a teletype machine, and this is going to help communicate. I mean, it's reasonable, absolutely reasonable. It just gives you some perspective compared to the, the new millennium. Just days after the murder of Virgil Starks, between May 7th and May 8th, this technology allowed for the spread of information about a red-haired man that was being hunted as part of a probe into the phantom slayings. He was apparently a former German prisoner of war who wore a GI jacket and was rumored to have weapons in his possession. This happened in 1946. The entirety of the Phantom Killer's activity goes from the end of February to the beginning of May 1946. The murder of Virgil Starks occurred on May 3rd. Very short reign of terror. And in fact, the Phantom Killer is really only operating for 10 weeks. Five murders were committed, and that's like an average of once every two weeks. In some of the sources, they try to say that the Phantom Killer is actually going out once every three weeks. But um, 
no matter what though there were there's a little bit of planning that has been involved with this but not too much so because this is in the post world war 2 era do you think that is consistent with these crimes somebody who was post world war 2 like a, a former prisoner of war someone who definitely would have had animosity toward everybody in the United States of America. But there's also another particular detail. They say that this German prisoner of war had red hair. The red-haired man that was being hunted as part of a probe into the phantom slayings. And the um, this same post will go on to say that there are witness sightings of a, a man with red hair that was acting very suspiciously earlier in 1946 and is it the same guy although they don't provide any details as to who those witnesses were or the times or the height and weight of this man with red hair but i think that it's important to to just bring about this next question do you think that that was the whole reason for the Phantom Killer's hood? We're in a pillowcase with the eye holes cut out. Was he simply trying to hide something that would make him more identifiable? And I know some of you are going to dispute that with me, but I think that having red hair would definitely be a little bit of a standout. I mean, I know that there are lots of red-headed people in the country, but definitely that would be something that people would recognize much more easily and it would absolutely narrow down the search if you had people like jimmy hollis and mary jean Larray and katie stark saying oh yeah well this uh red hair red-headed man with freckles was coming after me then um i think that that would definitely be something that people would be would remember and the killer would be aware of that is that the whole reason why he wore the hood i mean some interesting food for thought but at the same time they're saying the Phantom Killer is Caucasian, they're saying the Phantom Killer is African-American, and they're saying that the Phantom Killer had red hair. Maybe it was Wesley Snipes and Demolition Man, and they got the time travel thing all twisted backwards. But um, I don't think that that is the best theory. So it really goes to show you that the Phantom Killer's crappy makeshift disguise of wearing a pillowcase on his head actually worked and that the people of Texarkana had no idea what this guy looked like. This also allowed for an expansion of different theories out there that I've just gone through three of them about um the red-headed guy and he's using that to hide his hair or it was an African-American or maybe just the sexually frustrated Caucasian male. You could build up anything with a witness description as vague as this and it's nothing against the authorities they simply just didn't know what the phantom killer looked like even in the zodiac case though there are composite sketches with the phantom killer it doesn't appear that that is the case just days after the murder of virgil starks between may 7th and may 8th this technology allowed for the spread of information about a red-haired man who was the possible German prisoner of war. He had threatened several of the area's residents, including one while hitchhiking, so it was possible that he was a vagabond. Now, did this German prisoner of war skip town and just, he committed the crime spree in Texarkana and then just decided, oh crap, I've gone too far, now he skipped town? Again, it, it makes a little bit of sense. I certainly don't think they have enough evidence to say that that is actually what happened. 
but rumors continue to proliferate the case of the Phantom Killer, which now had extended to the shooting of Virgil and Katie Starks, as well as the February assault of Jimmy Hollis and Mary LeRae. One of the most popular theories throughout Texarkana was that each of the victims had personally run afoul of the shooter, who was now attempting to scare or hunt them down in revenge. And, um, as we said, anything's possible, lots of open theories. But it really does beg the question, though, about why the attacks appear to be so random. And, um, it also doesn't... It really almost seems like killing is the primary motive for the phantom killer, and this person is just trying to be a homicidal maniac, as opposed to targeting specific people. Then there was the theory that the killer was a sex-crazed maniac run amok, which seemed popular with investigators. After all, the first three attacks contained evidence of sexual assaults. And you see, um, the phantom killer is someone who is almost certainly sexually motivated, and it's entirely possible that he did know the victims. I mean, who's to say he did not? It's an unsolved case. But this also seems like a more powerful motive, sexual thinking, sexual motivations, sexually driven tension. I think that that is a more plausible theory. And if you want to dispute that with me in the comment section, please feel free to do so. Finally, we have the theories that regard specific people, even suspicious individuals in the area, such as the German-haired prisoner of war. Germ the red-haired German prisoner of war. I jumbled that a little bit. In fact, when one of these individuals left town for a short period of time, it became a topic of discussion, and rumors spread that he was being held by the Texas Rangers in a secret jail cell. And this led to um, just a whole bunch of rumors that people were spreading all around, and um, they were even the authorities had to issue multiple statements that please don't go around spreading rumors if you're not certain of what happened. Then the next step is that there will be confessions in this case. And if you ever watch the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown, like the one from the 1970s, they show some people interacting with um, the ranger Lone Wolf Gonzalez, and there's this guy who's confessing to the crimes, and they said, yep, he did it, he'll even show us where he threw the gun into the river. And they're trying to present that it's a bogus confession, but someone is really passionately saying that they were the phantom killer. And what is this leading to? False confessions. Now, I will read one of them for you, and you can uh, respond to it, but... This is the confession of Ralph B. Bauman, B-A-U-M-A-N-N. A man named Ralph B. Bauman confessed his involvement in the Texarkana murders to Los Angeles police. Bauman was an ex-Army Air Force veteran, and he had red hair, much like the descriptions of the odd man reported by Texarkana residents. Bauman claimed to have been in a subconscious coma for several weeks before waking up and running away from something bad. He said that he, after waking up, he learned about the killings and he felt that he might have been responsible, so he hitchhiked out west and ended up in California. He was viewed as a pretty realistic suspect because he matched the physical description of the attacker. In addition, he was very good with firearms, having served in the military as a gunner. And after waking up from the perceived coma, he couldn't find his rifle. Investigators heard out this young man's confession, but felt that he offered no new details. All of his information could have been learned from the radio or newspaper reportings. It was also discovered that he had been discharged from the military for being psychoneurotic. And 
I mean, that's a term that I don't encounter too frequently in these true crime episodes, psychoneurotic. But, you know, when I first read that, I was like, oh, wow, that actually seems like a really plausible confession. This guy, Ralph Bauman, all right, he is, um, he had some type of blackout state, and he may have committed the murders, and he realized what he had done, so he got on either a train or some hitchhiking, and went out to California to get away from it, then he decided to come clean. But then I began to think about how plausible would it be that someone is just going to be blacking out in this type of, what do they say, subconscious coma, and he's not going to remember two and a half months of his life. I found that to be a little bit harder to believe. It happens. Oh, it happens. People forget large extended pieces of their lives, especially if there's some type of head trauma, so to speak. But the more I began to think about it, the less likely I think that all of those things would have been put in place, that he forgot everything and then all of a sudden began to think that he suddenly just comes back to him, oh yeah, maybe I was the phantom killer. This seems almost like someone who is not completely sure of what he's saying, partnered with the fact that he was called psychoneurotic. As panic and paranoia tightened their grip around Texarkana, businesses began to experience a 20% drop in activity. On more than one occasion, this nearly led to an altercation between vigilante teens and police officers who were in the streets and eyed vehicles skeptically. And I'll jump ahead to one part because they also talk about the psychological profile of the Phantom Killer, and this was created by Dr. Anthony LaPala, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institute in Texarkana, who was called upon by the Texarkana Gazette following the murder of Virgil Starks. The paper wanted to gain a better understanding of the criminal's motivation, and Dr. LaPala created an early kind of psychological profile for the Phantom. Dr. LaPala believed that the killer would continue to strike at random. Well, um, it's entirely possible that that did happen, but as we said, Virgil Starks was the final confirmed victim of the Phantom Killers. So that's one strike against this guy already. He believed that this was his calling card, and he likely relished the thrill of the random nature of the attack. Dr. LaPala also believed that the four crimes were connected, as in he believed without a doubt that the murder of Virgil Starks and the shooting of Katie Starks could be linked to the other three crimes. How, though? I'm not saying that Virgil Starks was killed by somebody else. It's just, the big pieces of evidence seem to be missing. And, I mean, I will definitely give him credit that I think that this is a plausible motivation about committing a series of murders, making them seem seemingly random, and I think that, um... The relishing in the thrill of the random nature of the attacks. Yes, I think that's actually a legitimate statement, and I wouldn't dispute that. But this whole thing about insisting that the murder of Virgil Starks was the phantom killer, it looks like there could be several other possibilities. And I don't even really want to say this one, because I don't remember where I read it. It's in a different source, but it's, it requires a little bit of speculation, but somebody said that they thought Katie Starks was having an affair, and it was the other man, and he shot them with not the thirty-two caliber, but the twenty-two caliber, different firearm, because it was just a different, it was a different perpetrator who had a personal motive, 
and maybe Katie wanted to call off the affair, maybe she was just tired of being the other man, and that Katie and Virgil were specifically targeted, and they had absolutely nothing to do with the previous crimes. Now, was Katie Starks having an affair? I don't know, so I can't endorse any type of theory like that, but somebody did share that, and I wanted to include it all the same. Now, let's hear more from this uh, psychologist, Dr. Anthony LaPala, nice name. Dr. LaPala described the killer as being intelligent, clever, and shrewd, who was likely following the case closely in the media. He described the Phantom as being between his mid-thirties and mid-fifties, who lived a normal life, appearing to be a good citizen in his personal life. He was likely motivated by a strong sexual component, indicating that he was a sadist of sorts, and that he was most likely not a veteran. Dr. LaPala insisted this by stating that he had been in the war and his maniacal tendencies would have presented themselves differently. You know, like, I'll appreciate a statement like that, and I won't dispute that one too heavily, because, you know, some first-hand experience. The part that I'm most curious about is this age, 30 years to 50 years old. Sometimes I tend to think that the Phantom Killer was on the younger side. I've said very clearly about the Zodiac Killer case that I think the Zodiac Killer was between the early 30s and the early 40s. Now, the Phantom Killer, I could see him as young as a teenager, to be honest, going after the lover's lanes, as well as um, some... The lack of sophistication in the crimes also seems to have come from somewhat of an immature mind. You certainly don't have the Phantom Killer designing ciphers, so to speak. In a statement that shows how far we've come from the 1940s, Dr. LaPala stated that the killer was most likely white because, in his words, now forgive my language here, in general, Negro criminals are not that clever. Well, that's a giant load of crap. I mean, like... This um, unsolved article even calls that out. But, I mean, it, there is a witness sighting from someone who says that the killer was African-American. I would put that so much higher on the list than some guy just saying that certain people aren't smart enough to have committed a crime like that. Putting a pillowcase on someone's head and shooting people when there's no one else around. That's the thing with the Phantom Killer. These are not extremely extremely intelligent murders, going after people in secluded areas with a gun and they don't have a gun and shooting them, it really isn't some type of brilliant masterwork. That's why I tend to agree with the statement that these are sexually driven thrill kills. I mean, Dr. Anthony and I are um, mostly in agreement with that. Anthony LaPala described the last attack on the Starks' home as a natural outlier. He indicated that the killer had to strike a new target because he knew that his usual hunting grounds, lover's lanes, were being patrolled by local cops and vigilante groups. All right, this is a little bit better. This meant that he needed to find another venue for his aggression, so he focused on the Starks' farm. I can follow that much, and um, again, that, that seems like a reasonably insightful statement. In Dr. LaPala's summation, the killer was a threat and needed to be neutralized. Ah, yes, but there are no confirmed crimes committed by the Phantom Killer once again. We do uh, have to thank uh, this website here, unresolved.me, and the, um, they, they just had so much detail and so many thought-provoking questions that they are 
proposing in this one. And if anybody would like to read this full article from unresolved.me, it's the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, the town that dreaded sundown, and they even have like an introductory statement. Following a series of violent murders in the region of Texarkana, the mysterious culprit had been nicknamed the Phantom by the press, but as the years continued to pass, would go on to become an urban legend. And they talk about this a lot in the film The Town That Dreaded Sundown, the remake from 2014. Now, I definitely hope if you watch that movie, you will watch the one from the 1970s first, because they build upon each other. But the one final detail that I will share is, there was a prime suspect named Yule Swinney, who was arrested for stealing cars, I suppose, is the best way to put it. And he, when he was arrested, he said, Oh, you want me for more than stealing cars? Alluding to the fact that he had committed a more serious crime. And Yul Swinney was allegedly in the possession of some type of item from the Stark's welding shop that was on the property. So did that not suggest there's some type of first-hand connection between Yul Swinney and one of the crime scenes? I think absolutely yes. But do I think that Yul Swinney was the phantom killer? No. Because Yul Swinney's wife, uh, Peggy, would go on to say a bunch of things about how she witnessed the crimes and how Yul Swinney had told her these wild stories. And then it seemed more and more likely that she was making it up and the case against him started to seem rather flimsy. Now, as far as the connection to the Starks, the, the Texarkana Gazette, it published an article in 1948 that stated that the authorities began to distance the Starks murder from their other phantom killings. It, you, know, you can read it online, or even the Wikipedia page for the phantom killer cites this news article that the Texarkana Gazette is talking about how the authorities are saying that it's now rather unlikely that the same person, the phantom killer, committed the murder of Virgil Starks. This could have been an unrelated shooting. Or if it is related, some people are proposing that somebody was trying to pass off this crime as that of the phantom killer. Maybe either Virgil or Katie Starks was targeted for a specific reason. And I think that, um, I think that that is somewhat of a plausible hypothesis. And I don't want to outright say that the Phantom Killer did not murder Virgil Starks, because it is unsolved. But what I will say, very plainly, is that all of the evidence that I would expect should be there is not there. What do you think happened with the uh, Texarkana Moonlight murders of 1946? Do you believe there was a single killer? Or did somebody else commit the murder of Virgil Starks? Is this crime just too different to be that of the phantom killer or is it just what um dr lapala said that uh, this guy found that his normal targets the, the people at lover's lanes would be too predictable so he went after a couple in the house he's a sexually motivated killer and he wanted to keep going because he got off on it and then he was so bothered by the response of Katie Starks, or he saw how easily a victim survived. He came close to getting caught. He probably heard the gunshot that was fired, the rifle that was fired in the air to scare him off. So then he's like, you know what, I'm just going to skip town and never come back. Like, what do you think, though? I'm leaning toward this being a different killer. But I have found, though, like, say, for example, with the Zodiac mystery, once again, the more I look into it, the more it actually seems like the differences 
in the crimes come from a single planning mind. But what do you think? Please put your ideas in the comment section down below. And you can also weigh in on the suspects, Yul Swinney, the German prisoner of war, and maybe I'll do a larger episode on the suspects so I can talk about uh, Duty Tennyson, another uh, one of the prime suspects out there, and uh, the Bauman Confession. So many things that can be used in this ongoing series. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there is always blackboxned88 on Instagram. And I will see you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.